Welcome to Central Line, Leadership in Healthcare, the show that shares stories, experiences, and advice from notable and innovative leaders in healthcare. Leading in healthcare is incredibly challenging. So if you are looking to learn firsthand from nurses, physicians, administrators, and other healthcare professionals in leadership and management roles, this is the podcast for you. Hosted by Leah Wuchik, leadership development expert, executive coach, healthcare professional, and president and co-founder of Tall Trees Leadership. We talk with today's successful healthcare leaders on how they get to where they are, lessons learned along the way, and what it takes to thrive as a successful leader in healthcare. Let's get started with your host, Leah Wuchik. From a very young age, Christine Russell always knew she wanted to work in healthcare. Having an aunt who was an ICU nurse fascinated her, and she was always drawn to learning about the world of medicine. While enrolled at Mount Royal College, Christine lost her very good friend to cystic fibrosis. The loss was tough. She took a break from school, ended up joining the workforce and moving away from her studies entirely, and entered the workforce finally landing a career in marketing and communications. Fast forward to 2014, Christine's fascination for healthcare was brought back into her life, but not in the way one would expect. After the birth of her third child, a daughter named Ellie, Ellie and Christine developed septic shock from group A streptococcus. This severe illness required life-saving measures for both her and Ellie, which included being airlifted from the Medicine Hat Regional Hospital to the Foothills Medical Center in Calgary, Alberta. It has also resulted in repeated medical trauma from long-term health sequelae for Ellie as a result of her critical illness at birth. With little to no research around long-term implication from sepsis or severe infection at birth, Christine dove headfirst into the world of health research, patient quality improvement, and patient engagement, not only in a healthcare setting but beyond. She is a patient and family advisor with Alberta Health Services for almost three years and has consulted on a number of projects within their organization, including the post-COVID rehabilitation response framework and currently as co-chair on the Diversity and Engagement Strategic Clinical Network. She is also a patient advisor with Action on Sepsis, a research cluster at the University of British Columbia focused on tackling the complex issues of prevention, diagnosis, and long-term care of sepsis patients and their families. In 2017, the World Health Organization resolution identified sepsis as a global health priority, urging member states and the WHO Director General to take specific actions to reduce the burden of sepsis through improved prevention, diagnosis, and management. In response to this resolution, the Canadian Institutes of Health Research funded Sepsis Canada, a single nationally coordinated research network to further understand the causes of sepsis, improve the prevention, detection, and management of sepsis, and support recovery and rehabilitation from this disease. The Sepsis Canada network brings together 200 plus experts from different disciplines working collaboratively on various projects under an integrated and unified program of research. Christine started as a member of Sepsis Canada as a patient partner in 2020. She is a steering committee member, training committee member, and chair of their communications working group. In the fall of 2021, she was hired full-time as their marketing and communications program manager. 
She's also one of the five patient partners who developed and will be facilitating the Sepsis Canada Interdisciplinary Training Program. And lastly, and most importantly, Christine is a wife to Stephen and mother to three wonderful children, Nolan, who is 13, Gavin, who is 10, and Ellie, and the catalyst for all the work she does, who is seven. Good morning, Christine. How are you? Good. How are you doing? I'm doing really well. Thank you for being here on Central Line Leadership in Healthcare. Um, I'm really thrilled to have you, and I'm really excited to hear a little bit about your background and what has brought you into healthcare, um, because you have a bit of a different background than some of my other guests um, who have maybe done healthcare for their entire career. So I'm wondering if you can share with us your, your journey to the place that you're at. Sure. Uh, I guess I don't come really with the same sort of lens as the the other guests that you've had. Like you said, I, I, I sort of got more or less thrown into healthcare. I've always had um, from a really young age, a passion for healthcare. I had an aunt that was an ICU nurse. I've always really been fascinated with healthcare. I um, dabbled a little bit with, I, I wanted to be a paramedic um, right out of high school uh, and then I went to Mount Royal at the time, Mount Royal College. That's I'll age myself a little bit there <laughs> and um, Mount Royal College and um, was going to go into the nursing program. I, I lost a really good friend to cystic fibrosis in college. Um, and that that sort of I, I feel like set me back a little bit. I I decided to take a break from school. I, I entered the workforce instead and totally moved away, I, I think, from, from pursuing my studies in healthcare. I, I, became, I, I worked in, in administration at, in, in sports medicine. I worked for the Calgary Flames doctor for a little while. I still sort of stayed and maintained sort of in that healthcare realm. I, I worked as a unit clerk at the PLC for a little while. Um, and then I moved way, quite away from there and, and moved into uh, a management role in, in financial services. And, and then, and then decided I I got married, I had kids. Um, and then in 2014, actually, um, I guess my fascination for healthcare was brought back into my life, but not really in the way that, that one would expect. Um, I, we had our, had our, had our third baby. It was her, her name was Ellie. Um, and, uh, we developed septic shock from group A strep, and um, we both were severely, severely ill. At that time, we lived in Medicine Hat, and we both had to be airlifted to Calgary mm-hmm. um, to Foothills Hospital. And so, um, Ellie spent uh, 18 days in the ICU, um, I think. 10 or 11 of those were on a level three. Um, and you would know, I think just from your background and, and most of the listeners that are healthcare, I guess, oriented, a level three is the highest level NICU care that you can receive. Um, she was the, they always said the smallest baby, but the sickest baby in that level. Most of the time you see premature babies in that, on that level of NICU care. 
Um, she went through uh, a lot of medical trauma, I would say, um, and medical intervention at that time as, as a neonate. And we did almost lose her. And so there was, I guess for me, and, and I was quite ill as well. And, and I think as a mom, you sort of put your illness to the wayside because you're just, you know, it's fight or flight at that time. And just, you know, you're in it and you're just trying to, you're, you're just, you know, you're just hoping you just want to bring your baby home, I guess. Right. And so, um, we, um, we were discharged and we were sent home and, um, there was, you know, a period of time where you just, you you don't even kind of know what hit you, I suppose. Right. And Ellie did develop some, Ellie did develop some long-term sequelae from, from her critical illness. And so there was little to no research around that um, from sepsis or severe infection as a neonate. And so that sort of threw me into the world of health research, uh, patient quality improvement, uh, patient engagement in research. And so that's kind of where that all stemmed, I suppose. I'm so sorry that you had to go through that experience. Uh, uh, as a mom, I can only imagine what that was like to uh, not only be ill yourself and very ill, but also for your little one to be so ill as well. And as you mentioned, it, it kind of threw you into this space of lived experience and research. What I'm curious about is your work in research and how that has developed since that lived experience? Well, you know, they always say, don't go down the Google hole, but I think it it first started for me was I need to, I need to start researching and looking up. I mean, because for Ellie, it started with just very odd symptomology of, of, um, you know, behaviors, physical symptoms. It was pain related mostly for her, unfortunately, mm-hmm. um, that was happening to her around the, the age of two and a half, which is it's, it's tough because you're at a developmental age and, an, yeah. and an age where there's now verbalization and, and some verbalization, but, but not, not enough verbalization to, articulate what's happening. And so it was very difficult for her and for us to explain to the multiple specialists that we were seeing now at the children's hospital, what was actually happening to her. And so for me, then I was taking all of these consults that I was, that we were going to, I mean, we saw neurology, cardiology, um, we saw rheumatology, we saw the pain clinic, we saw, um, we saw infectious disease again. We saw all of these specialists and now I was taking all this information and then I was researching and I was researching on, on medical journal sites um, through the internet and getting subscriptions to medical journal sites because not all, all of them are accessible free to try and figure out um, based on written symptomology and blood work and EEG reports that I was getting from, from the hospitals. Can I like, are there, 
are there any medical journals out there of kids that have had group A strep specifically? So group A strep is the, the strep bacteria that is caused by strep throat. So just to give a little bit of background is when you're pregnant, you're swabbed for group B strep. Group B strep is the swab that every patient gets at 37 weeks when they're pregnant to screen for. And so group A strep was the bacteria that I had that I didn't know. So I had group A strep and didn't even know that I had strep throat um, or that bacteria and it, and it manifested and became life threatening for both of us. And obviously we weren't screened for it. Mm -hmm. And, you know, the, the comments that were made because Foothills is a, a massive teaching hospital is this is something that's seen in third world countries. And this is something that I've learned now since doing a lot of research work with, with multiple different research clusters um, in British Columbia and nationally when we, when working, because we work on, a, on kind of a global stage as well, is that um, this is the type of bacteria that's found in third world countries still, or a hundred years ago. So this isn't something that is common. So number one, now we're dealing with something with that's not common in Canada. And so trying to find journal articles or research studies around this particular extremely rare illness um, in today's day and age it, it was like trying to find a needle in a haystack and now trying to find long-term sequelae research from a child. Now, as it develops and grows, it was, was next to impossible. Mm -hmm. um, and so that's kind of where I just, I kept, I, I didn't let it go because I, I thought, you know, there's gotta be, there's gotta be something. And if there's not something, then Ellie, who, which is my daughter's name has to be that something now cha that changes the course for the next child. If this ever happens again, or the next family, if this ever happens again. Right. Now you mentioned the difficulty in finding information on this and that, that drive to keep going. Um, and I, I really do appreciate the tenacity that you have and the willingness to just immerse yourself into this um, on behalf of Ellie and all the other potential children that have been through or could go through a similar experience to Ellie. I'm curious to know um, what was, other than being unable to find the information that you were looking for, what was the biggest frustration? I think the, I think the unwillingness for some I mean, not all, because now that I've I've become part of multiple research networks that do exist, I think some of it was the the lack of um, the lack of I would say not willingness, but possibly the capability, because we know that our healthcare system is under so much pressure mm -hmm. and and now more so than ever because of covid right that the 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 lack of ability to think outside of the box right so when when we when we were seen by multiple specialists so we go to one specialist and they're they're skilled in their area and then we go see another specialist and they're skilled in their area and right. then we go to another specialist and they're skilled in their area but they're not thinking that, okay, 
this child was, you know, at birth, critically ill with a severe infection, had multiple um, interventions, had multiple um, pain-related interventions. And now that they're finding that pain is a trigger, can cause long-term neurodevelopmental implications, could this all be related? But because those specialists don't particularly deal with that, it, it was kind of thrown off the table, I guess. Mm-hmm. And I think we see that a lot, even not just in pediatric care, but we see that in adult care too, right? So it's that looking at that holistic view of the patient is really important. And we're and it's unfortunate because our healthcare system, again, is so taxed um, and more so, be, again, because of COVID. But I will touch on COVID in a second because I think that's really opened up the doors for a lot of things that that is a lot of the the reason why I think we are still in the same sort of situation that we were in, at least turning eight in July. And we've been doing this since she's been two and a half. Mm -hmm. But now going back to COVID, I think COVID now has opened up the doors for individuals who have been critically ill and are suffering long-term sequelae from critical illness. So now people that have been septic or have had severe critical illness and that are suffering long-term sequelae from critical illness, and unfortunately we're seeing pediatric patients that are suffering long-term sequelae from COVID, there is is a correlation between that. And you have this large population of individuals that now all at once have been critically ill with severe, with severe illness and not necessarily infection, but we know that severe COVID is actually sepsis that are now having long-term post-COVID um, long COVID, so to speak, like the long, like long COVID long-term sequelae from their illness. Now those patients that have had sepsis or severe infection and have spent time in the ICU, they're, they're the same patient population. And so it has opened the doors now for that patient population and more research dollars and more research has, is being done now and studies are being done for patients that have had long-term or severe illness and now will have long-term sequelae from that severe, severe illness. That's really interesting. And, and of course, very unfortunate that these people are going through these things. Um, but what really stands out to me, which I really hadn't considered before is, as you mentioned, this uh, bulk of people who have experience this all at a very similar time frame and are going through these long-term effects um, uh, together almost and how that has opened the door for this additional funding and this additional additional research. Whereas, you know, perhaps in the past, we haven't had these numbers on mass. It's maybe been an oversight in a lot of ways in the, in the healthcare system about not looking into these long-term sequelae. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 
I think so. You know, I, I think like when we were discharged and even when I was discharged, um, and I mean, I didn't, I didn't go to the ICU. So I, I was septic, but didn't, it didn't end up being, I, I wasn't in organ failure. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I didn't need to go to the ICU. I was treated with a meningitic dose of penicillin, which unfortunately I, by, by IV, but I found out I was allergic to it. Um, I was 33 years old, found out I was allergic to penicillin, which was another horrible experience on top of being that ill and having a baby that ill. And that's, I can only imagine. Yeah. Right. (laughs) Just, just throw another, just yeah. Salt on the wound, I suppose. But, um, but I, I didn't, I didn't get to that point, but I mean, I, I still have long-term implication from being that sick. I suffer from post-traumatic stress disorder from that experience. And, and it likely wasn't my illness that caused that. It was the, it was the fact that I had a baby in the NICU that I went through all of that, um, that experience with, right. Mm -hmm. But there's, you know, there's not even just the, the physical, um, sequelae from critical illness. There's, you know, post ICU syndrome for a lot of these individuals too. And, and the issue being is that anybody that spent time in the ICU on a ventilator, um, and, and we talk about people that are intubated and a lot of people didn't even know what intubation was, um, prior to watching the news and seeing people with COVID and what the extent of intubation actually means for an individual in the ICU. And, and then all of a sudden being discharged and then being sent home and having no rehabilitation or recovery plan for them, and then just being sent home. Um, to not think that there's some long-term sequelae from critical illness just blows my mind. Right. Yeah. I think... Uh, you know, I, I think back to my own personal experience working in the ICU and I think about, you know, you're very focused on the task at hand, which is very needed. And there is this whole other piece, as you're mentioning, about what happens when that person does go home. Um, do they have the support that they need? Um, and what does that look like? And as you said, support can look different for different people. And I, I appreciate you bringing forward the post-traumatic stress disorder that you're um, experiencing as a result of having Ellie being so sick. And, you know, what does support look like for that? What could it be? Um, so you've taken this experience and you have used it as, it sounds like you've used it as almost a catalyst for for your life around this work and research. And I know now you're involved with Sepsis Canada. Um, Maybe share a little bit about Sepsis Canada and the work that uh, you're doing with them. Yeah, so um, I started out with Sepsis Canada. So Sepsis Canada is a a Canadian Institute of Health Research funded organization. In 2017, the uh, World Health Organization resolution identified sepsis as a global health priority. Um, Finally, I I mean, again, I can't believe it took that long um, to do that, but they, they 
the WHO director general um, made us like specified that um, that w- the world needs to take specific actions to reduce the burden of sepsis by improving prevention, diagnosis, and management of sepsis for patients and their families. And so, in response to that re- resolution, the CIHR um, funded Sepsis Canada. And so Sepsis Canada is a single nationally coordinated research network, um, which is uh, which brings together over 200 uh, researchers, uh, clinicians, patient partners from across Canada. And um, I, I started with them in 2020 as a patient partner, and I sit on their steering committee. Um, I sit on their training committee and I am the chair of their communications working group. And then in the fall of 2021, I was hired uh, full-time as their marketing and communications program manager. My background now from um, my working background is actually in marketing and communications. And so I've been hired on full-time. So I guess it kind of came full circle Um because part of my lived experience um, obviously brought me to, to what I do now. Um, And now I can, I guess, help with communicating out to the public uh, in a way that is understandable to the public. But I also understand from the perspective of the patient, uh, what the research that's being done is, I suppose. Mm-hmm. Um, it's a little bit, it comes with a di- little bit of a different lens. So I'm curious then with Sepsis Canada, so it, it's research-based, um, but I do know uh, that you mentioned that there are programs that Sepsis Canada offers. What are those programs? What are they all about? So there is a, there right now, the one, the one that really stands out to me, there is a training program right now. And the training program has that has been developed. It was one of the the larger uh, pieces of the funding that came out of CIHR. And it's a training program that was co-developed with um, some of the researchers um, as well as patient partners. And the patient partners piece to it was really important to us in that we were we were looking to engage and bring in more patient partners to become patient scientists within the network. And so by becoming patient scientists, we wanted to break the silos between researchers and patients. And so making sure that we were always engaging patients in the early stages of the research to get the the patient perspective in research Mm -hmm. and the patient voice in research. And so that 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 would include having patients in the early developments of research when even just coming up with a research question what what was important to patients in research and what was important in patients to um when when coming up with um research around sepsis what was important to patients and how was it important that we engaged patients in research and and so by having this training program available, the, the patients are actually teaching the researchers how to properly engage those patients in research. Mm. Wow. I mean, that sounds amazing. And, and 
I, I have to assume, uh, and maybe I shouldn't make this assumption, but I, I would assume that this is probably quite new in the healthcare space. Well, it is and it isn't. It's it's it has been around for quite some time. Um, the like spore is a big big part. So um, spore is um, a um, strategy for patient oriented research. It is it is developed by CHR, so the Canadian Institute of Health Research, and each province has their own sort of chapter of spore. Um, I think some provinces uh, do a, I would not say a better job of patient oriented research or their strategy for patient oriented research, but the Canadian Institute of, of Health Research is really focused on now, if they're going to fund your research, you need to have a very strong strategy of engaging patients in your research. And so if you want to submit, um, if you want to submit a grant proposal, if they have a grant um, call that comes out for um, funding, you have to make sure that you're engaging patients now. Um, it's very, it's been very prevalent in the UK that it's done this way. Any grant that you put out, you have to have patients engaged in it, um, which makes it's total sense. Um, the US is a bit stronger in it now too, but Canada is really stepping up their game in the sense of having patients actively involved in research. I just don't know if we do a very good job of it. I think the intention is there and that, you know, the, the, the structure of laying it out is this is what we want you to do, but it's, it's how do we do it effectively and how do we do it meaningfully? And so by having this program and having this program available for, and it's not just for people that want to engage in sepsis research, there's another arm of it um, called the lifting program, which was just funded by CHR for another training program. Um, grant that was just that just came out. I believe we received two point four million dollars from CHR for this. Um, I was one of the patient partners that um, was on that grant um, um, call, and it, it it's now for critical health research that part of it. So it's not just sepsis related. So there's a sepsis related program, and then there's a critical illness piece to it, and so. This this is now really having patients teaching health care or health researchers and early career researchers, as well as patients teaching patients how to be how to engage patients and how do patients become engaged in research. So I'm going to come back to that because I'm really interested in hearing how that happens. But first, what I'm curious about is you mentioned the UK is a bit farther ahead. The US is a bit farther ahead. From your perspective, what contributes to Canada maybe being a bit farther behind? I'm not sure. Um, I, I, I don't know. I, I, I think maybe it's because of the universal healthcare system not being universal here. Like Canada's healthcare is universal, but provincially everything is different. Yeah. Um, that could be an one of the key factors here. Um, 
and and the the healthcare system here um, just might not have the capacity to engage patients down in the U.S. Everything there's private funding; they have more money too down there. They they do and they don't. Right, their their private system has more money, and so when they have private when the the, the private system and they have that sort of funding model down there that they may be um, engaging patients more often down there, because depending on what sort of stream you're in, um, in the UK, it seems like their research might be a little bit more advanced in sepsis research. They're a bit more advanced. So that might be why on that sepsis realm, it might be that way. I, you know, I'm not, I'm not a hundred percent sure why it's been like that. I know mm-hmm. patient oriented research has been around in Canada for, 10 plus years. We just haven't been great at it, I think. Um, and, and maybe that just that resistance, they're just unsure on how to engage. They, they want to engage. They're just not sure how to engage. Patients aren't as actively engaged as they were, um, or they are in the UK or in the US. I think it's starting to pick up more now for sure in Canada. Um, programs like this, I think will help. Um, there are other programs across Canada. The UFC has a program called the PACER program. It's a two-year program, um, for patients. Um, there's another program out of McMaster called the family engagement and research program. I took that program. It's a fantastic program. Um, and so there are other programs out there for engaging patients in research, um, it's just a matter of finding the patients that want to engage. So that's interesting because you bring up the question around the how, like how do we actually engage patients? Um, and I think the other piece of it is really the value that lived experience brings um, to care, of course, and also research. Um, you know, if I speak about myself, I've heard a lot more about patient engagement in care, um, you know, patient family center care. Um, I haven't heard as much around engagement in research. So what are some of the different ways that this can happen? Yeah, I think part of it is, is educating people on what does patient engagement in research actually mean? Because I think the misconception for a lot of people is that engaging in research means I'm going to, you know, I'm going to provide just a sample. Here's my sample to provide to you so you can analyze it in a research lab. Because I think for when you think about research, that's I think what a lot of patients might think that that means that Mm -hmm. it's strictly biomedical research. And that's what we're researching. We're just going to research your sample because you have a rare disease or you have, you know, you've had cancer, you have a rare type of cancer, and we just want to do research on your specific specimen. And that's not what engaging patients in research is. Um, I sit on both sides. So I'm a patient engagement in care as well. So I sit on um, the provincial advisory group for Alberta Health Services. Um, And so I sit on that sort of realm of patient engagement, but on the research side um, too, 
we've done the sample thing because again, Ellie is sort of that anomaly, like that anomaly of undiagnosed. We're not quite sure. So we've done the genome testing. We've done the exome testing. We've done all of those types of things too, in a research setting, but engaging in research can be from just being part of a focus group where you're providing feedback to a research project and just having a discussion, or you can be part of a survey um, development on ask, on helping develop survey questions. Um, you can be part of how do we actively recruit participants for a survey? What are the best questions to ask? Uh, how do we develop a research project? What's the best, um, how, uh, what type of research should we be doing? There's a whole bunch of different ways that patients can be a part of research without being the research subject. And I think that's that's sort of the education that needs to be um, delivered to patients when wanting to engage patients in research. What I hear in that is really moving from that perspective of the patient as the subject to the patient as an expert and a partner. Yeah, a patient as a partner, 100%. Yeah. Yeah. So one thing I do know is you also produce a podcast. So I'm curious to hear about that. Yeah, the podcast was actually um, a part of a research cluster that I work with out of the University of British Columbia. So again, as a patient partner in a research cluster. So another way to engage as a research, um, as a partner in research, I guess. Um, it was an idea that the, the research or, or the patients on that advisory group came up with, and it was a way to um, engage the patients with the lived, ex- with lived experience with sepsis um, and engage them with the researchers in that cluster. And so the podcast is a um, three, we have three series right now. And those series are all about one particular patient story and that those, then those patients um, stories are then, then they're interviewed um, by experts to talk about um, parts of that patient's lived experience so, for example, uh, the first series is actually I'm the host, but the first series is actually about Ellie and I's story. So it's about neonatal and postpartum sepsis. And so then I interview a neonatologist and a researcher that's focused on um, maternal sepsis research. And then the next series is about a lady who developed post-surgical sepsis, and she did spend time herself in the ICU and developed ICU psychosis. She was intubated. And so we talk about intubation with um, an ICU physician. And then we talk about um, post-sepsis syndrome, which is similar to long COVID um, and post-sepsis research with a researcher. He's a uh, med student, but he's doing a PhD right now. And so really focusing on the specific pieces of sepsis from the lived experience of the patient. Hmm. Sounds pretty powerful, especially bringing in those stories, as you said, of the lived experience. Uh, Where can people find the podcast? 
So the podcast can be found on sepsis.ubc.ca forward slash podcast. That's the URL. Okay, great. Thank you for that. So in closing, um, Christine, what I'm wondering is through all of this, through your lived experience, um, the trauma that you experienced to the, the work that you're doing now with Sepsis Canada and the work that you've done with research and, and all of your contributions, what would you say is the biggest lesson that you've learned? I think that the biggest lesson I've learned is that no matter what experience you've had, whether it's in healthcare or not in healthcare, your experience is valid and your experience is worth sharing. That you, what you've experienced can contribute to change and your voice matters. And that what I found is that even though we did have a really terrible experience and it did take a long time to overcome some of the anger and the guilt that I had, what this has done for me is it's provided a chance for me to heal from some of that trauma that we experienced because I know that what I'm doing now will be able to change the course for a lot of people in the future and hopefully be able to save lives because of this and also allow people to realize that what they have been through, they can also use their experience to do the same thing. Giving voice, I think is so important. And I am really grateful that you have been able to give voice for yourself um, and to share in all of this work um, and to be able to uh, support others to do the same thing and and advocate for that. Um, So thank you so much, Christine, for being here. I really appreciate you sharing your wisdom and your vulnerability and um, just being such an amazing contributor to making things better. Well, thank you so much for having me. Thanks so much for joining us today at Central Line, Leadership in Healthcare. Also, if you liked what you heard, please head on over to Apple Podcasts to leave us a review. Be sure to subscribe so that you never miss an episode. Also, if you'd like to learn more about our host, Leah Woodchick, check out talltreesleadership.com.